0: everyone. Welcome back to the Solana podcast. My name is Maddie. I'm the head of growth at Solana Labs. I'll be guest hosting today and we have a special guest, Tristan from Zeta. So welcome. Thanks for having me on, Maddie. It would be great to know just a little bit about yourself and maybe how you started your, your crypto journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can give you the long and the short of it. So I think I started getting into crypto back in the day, probably in 2017, when I think a lot of people got into it during the last bull run. And that was mostly just, you know, speculating on coins, looking what was going on in the in the ecosystem. DeFi didn't really exist yet at that point. And I feel like a lot of people are still grasping at what is the real use case of crypto at the moment, other than these kind of buying these coins and seeing the moon. Um, didn't feel like there was a real kind of engineering need for it or some kind of real product market fit. And so that's kind of why I tapered off a little bit after a year in that space, just kind of checking things out. I, you know, went back, finished my degree, actually ended up doing a bunch of courses in like distributed systems and computing um, because I started getting interested in you know the whole blockchain side of things from the engineering standpoint. You know, It was like creating your own, coding up your own proof of work blockchain, which I thought was really cool and just understanding like the fundamentals of Bitcoin. And then I think, yeah, over the years, I took a bit of a breather on it. I unfortunately missed DeFi summer, which I was pretty FOMO about. And then <laughs> coming back to it, I, I'd been hearing so much about smart contract programming, what you can build in this kind of new DeFi boom and what was going on there. And so, yeah, I came back into the space after having worked for roughly like two years as a data scientist kind of in the Bay Area. I think I was a little bit tired of the remote work uh, kind of grind there, even though I enjoyed my job. And so I decided, hey, in my free time over Christmas, I'm just going to go and learn how to program on Solidity. And so I made a few kind of smart contracts, learned what was up there. Randomly was just, you know, putting together uh, a kind of DeFi idea, looped in some of my best friends from, from kind of more of a trading and, and finance background. We decided to like put our brains together and just be like, hey, what can we build in this space? And then, yeah, after throwing around uh, enough ideas, I think we we ended up settling on something that was really cool. We thought the derivative space was somewhat untapped, especially options seem like such a huge market, but no one's really done it. And, you know, randomly we reached out to like Dom, uh, Fellow Australian. And then we basically he put us in touch with with uh Tolly and, and Bartos. And after talking to them a bunch and reading the white paper many times, like got really sold on Solana and have just been developing on it since.
0: Nice. And if I remember correctly, you guys were the winners of the Solana season hackathon, which was extremely competitive. I think there were like thirteen thousand plus participants, which I believe is like the largest hackathon, not only in crypto, but like ever in the technology space. So it would be great to just hear like how you guys kind of work through that whole event and kind of like what you guys came up with coming out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that was definitely like a tough experience and like an interesting challenge. As you mentioned, yeah, 13,000 people to compete against. And that was really when we were finding our feet in the crypto space, like not having as much of a network or I guess like a reputation being kind of new builders in the space. And you know, I won't go too much into it, but we went through like a, a team split and stuff during that kind of time. so it was a really tumultuous period. And so you know we just thought, hey, we got to give this hackathon 110 percent and do what we do best. Like we're all engineers and ex traders. so we're just like we got to build man because that's what we're really good at and that's how we can prove ourselves. So we went into that. I pretty much quit my job, I would say like two days before the hackathon started to, to give it 110 percent, as did like uh, a couple of the other guys. You know, And then we just went in there, uh, pretty much worked out of out of the same apartment for like three weeks, I would say, putting in like 16 hours a day. So we must have worked like over 100 hours a week, just like ridiculous hours. Um, it was pretty much like wake, wake up, code, go to bed, which got pretty tiring by the end. Like I was pretty exhausted, but we, we pumped out a lot of work and we built out this kind of very early stage binary options MVP platform of, you know, which is very far cry from what we have now, but... You know, it was amazing to, to smash that out in three weeks, like learn Anchor from Fundamentals, still kind of in the process of, of learning Rust at that time. And then like whipping together a front end. We ended up like getting the product out, which was fine and kind of, it was a little hacky, but it, it worked. And then we ran into so many infrastructure problems. Like we didn't fully understand or appreciate the difficulty of like RPC nodes and <laughs> trying to service all those requests. So our front end got rate limited like crazy. So to actually get it out there on DevNet that people could use it, we were like, we had this funny photo where it's like six laptops side by side, all hotspotting off different like different <laughs> Wi-Fi hotspots just so we d- get different IPs so we don't get rate limited on all of them. Um, and then we were kind of like wow. doing what's called cranking, you know, to kind of process orders on the back end all through these like mini distributed cluster of computers in the same room. So that was, that was kind of uh, an awesome experience. And yeah, it brought the team together. We pretty much like got a lot of our friends to, to come in who were like our colleagues and then we kind of... I guess, hired them off the bat. And then we grew the team like pretty quickly to, I don't know, seven or eight people like straight off the back of the hackathon.
0: Wow. That's, that's insane. I didn't know that story about running like your own kind of cluster of computers to to not get rate limited. That's amazing. Um, And so I think, I think you mentioned like your initial idea in the hackathon and kind of what you worked on initially was, was binary options, but that's, that's not exactly what's in the product suite today for for Zeta protocol. So maybe just walk walk us through, one, like, why didn't you pursue that idea? And two, like, what is Zeta today? Like, what what is the actual product?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So I think with binary options, that was never really the plan for us. We didn't want to, like, kind of box ourselves into that kind of very niche vertical. I think they have a bit of a bad rep in traditional markets. They're kind of banned in a lot of countries because I think they are a little bit of a degenerate product, to be honest, like it's kind of glorified betting. And so we wanted to move away from that. We want options that people can actually trade properly in, in a sophisticated manner in financial markets and kind of hedge exposure and do all these things that you currently can't, can't really do in crypto markets. Like people tend to just go balls long right now, like 100x leverage, and either they get liquidated or they become a millionaire. So we're like, there's probably some in between where people can be a bit smarter. And this is pretty much what all the pros use on, like, you know, Wall Street and all these other places. Like, pro traders are trading options and other derivatives. So we're like, this is a great element to have in your toolbox. So we strayed away from, I think, binary options, even though the reason we did it was because the math is a ton easier uh, and it was easy to implement. So we got that out there. It kind of proved that we could build something like this. And then we kind of backed away from that. We went for vanilla options, which we think are far more interesting. There's far more market demand. It's like a multi-trillion dollar industry um, in traditional markets. You know, people use it all the time, super popular. You even see like people getting into it from like, you know, kind of more user-friendly apps like Robinhood in the US has just blown up in popularity. So we're like this this clear market fit. And then now we're we're trying to, I think historically we've been seen as just purely an options platform, which we were for a period of of a couple of months. Um, But now we're really broadening our focus to all derivatives, I think, which is really exciting. Having everything kind of Cross margined and and like kind of viewed under the one umbrella platform, um, I think is really cool and always like building into creation. So, what we have right now is futures and options. So, we are the first one to offer dated futures on DeFi, I'm pretty sure. Even like across Ethereum, I don't think anyone offers it, which is pretty interesting. Everyone seems to go like fully perps, but we do futures, we do options, um, which is nice because you can kind of hedge out using the futures um, for your options. And then we're going to be looking to list stuff like uh, perpetual swaps as well, probably broaden it into like a bunch of other categories for derivatives based on demand and what's feasible to build on chain. But really, we think the options are pretty limitless there and trying to build out like a whole suite of uh, trading products that people can get dug into.
0: That's a great overview. I guess like kind of double clicking on one of the things you said, which is, um, you know, options are really, really popular product in institutional, traditional finance. And even now thanks to you know robin hood of making it like a great user interface for like retail to even participate in options why, why exactly is that the case what what is so appealing about options that that it applies to kind of both audiences
1: i think for more casual users i think the payoff structure is just like very very appealing i can't demonstrate it here on the podcast but essentially you have unlimited upside so as if you were to get a perp or like hold spot. If Solana rips to like $1,000, you're exposed to that all upside, which is really nice to see. But the cool thing is like your downside is essentially capped. So if Solana tanks, you only ever lose what you put up for the premium, which may be like, I don't know, $100 or something or other. So it's almost like you're buying this insurance. Um, you've got unlimited upside, limited downside, which is in stark contrast to say you buy a perp and you know Solana tanks a lot. And then suddenly you've lost a ton of money. You get liquidated, which is pretty tough. So I think that's pretty cool. It's also like options are inherently cheaper than, than spot as as with like most derivatives. Like that's why they're more efficient. That's why people trade perps because it's like easy leverage, I guess. With options, they're inherently kind of under collateralized. You're only paying kind of a fraction of what you would for like the, the actual Solana coin is uh, like a spot asset. So that's pretty, pretty nice. And then I think from the institution side, and hopefully you're going to start seeing this more from like the DeFi user side as well. I think it's a really good tool for hedging risk. And this is like their primary use case, I would say, in traditional markets. And you can almost think of it like you're buying kind of fixed insurance um, on your portfolio. So what you'll do is like, say I have a net long, you know, huge position on Solana or some other coin, and I want to be protected on the downside. I'm just paying like a small amount of money, essentially, to buy puts, say, and so if the market does tank, you know, I've got this nice thing that's protecting my downside. I think those are all like really, really appealing things. And you can start to pair up a lot of these uh, different options. So you can kind of buy calls and puts, and then you can build these kind of very interesting payoff structures, things like straddles, which are kind of this V-shaped payoff where I'm basically market neutral. I'm I'm like delta neutral. I don't have an opinion on whether the market's going to like rip up or rip down, but I just know it's going to go a long way in one direction. So you essentially start speculating on purely like volatility, which is an interesting new trading paradigm that I don't think a lot of people do. So you might be unsure, like, I don't know where the market's going to move, but I know it's going to move a ton. Um, And you can start, I think, placing bets on that, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, Zeta is not the first project to try to tackle options and bring it to a a bigger audience in DeFi. Why do you think previous attempts at this haven't been quite as successful?
1: Yeah, awesome question. And this is really what spurred us to start in the first place. Um, We were looking into this, I think, early 2021. We spent like a good month or two just not even coding that much, but just surveying the landscape, seeing what was out there and where we would necessarily fit in. And so I think at that time, pretty much nothing existed on Solana. There was what Serum, I think Bonfita, Radium had only just launched. So it was was very early days, but um, obviously... Most of the competitors, or I guess people in that landscape, are on the kind of each side, Um, and so I won't like name any platforms. But there are like a couple out there. They're mostly these kind of one-sided AMM pools, which basically all they do is sell options, and so that's not really satisfactory. You're not kind of like doing the buying and selling. You're kind of forced into one, and whenever you're placing uh, your capital into this AMM pool, you're like a forced seller all the time. So basically, you have no choice whether you want to sell the option, and you always get done at really poor prices. It also requires like people to have, I think, pretty good pricing to, to make sure they get a a good deal for their LPs. But from what we saw with some of those platforms, they price them really poorly. You have this parameter called implied volatility that you will kind of mm-hmm. uh, have an opinion on or put into your pricing model. And I remember the founder of this one protocol was updating it like once a week, whereas like crypto is very volatile, changes intraday. So you know, if you looked at the Dune Analytics dashboard, like a lot of their LPs were like just down twenty percent. You know year to date, which is like, why would I put my money in this pool? It's just like losing me money consistently. Yeah. And then there were other nice, nice ones that were more like order book based, um, which I think were cool. But the only problem was like, Ethereum gas fees were like crippling, you try and put on like a call spread, it'd be like $200 in fees. And I'm like, that just wipes out all my PL. Like I've got to be a whale that's putting on this massive, massive trade. Otherwise, you know, any kind of smaller fry are just going to get completely like priced out of the market. And their liquidity was just non existent. They've got like, one strike on their order book that had like two trades on or something or that everything else was just like blank. So I was like, there's no way that I'm going to trade on this willingly versus like Deribit or some other kind of options exchange out there. And so I guess the way in which we're different, um, we're obviously built on Solana. So you get the really nice uh, performance aspects of the network. A big sell for us was being able to use Serum. So the decentralized order book infrastructure, which is kind of a feat of engineering there and is like powers pretty much all our markets which is pretty incredible. And something that we've tried to do, I guess the four main points we've tried to hit, capital efficiency is super important. So we want people to be able to put on positions without having to go over collateralized or fully collateralized and put up a ton of capital, which makes it really inefficient to trade. It means like, hey, I can't open a lot of positions. Suddenly I've like tied up all my money in this one position. And so this is really bad for, I think, individual users and especially market makers. Market makers need to put on like 50 different positions across like all different markets so that makes it really tough for them Uh, makes it really inefficient to trade and if you don't have market makers who can trade efficiently you're just going to have like not very liquid markets so that brings me to the second point we want to like aim for liquidity obviously trying to onboard these market makers we have two dedicated market makers which is really cool they're providing liquidity 24 7 and kind of quoting our markets which is really exciting the third point is user friendliness i think options scare a lot of people and derivatives in general like can be scary because they're a little bit more complicated but they're nothing to be scared about. And we're trying to bring down that barrier to entry. We've seen what other platforms like Robinhood have done in terms of, I think, making a lot more user-friendly, building stuff like a mobile app and having more explainers in products. So we've taken, I think, some notes from that. We've tried to build a really intuitive trading interface first and foremost, so people can go in there and it somewhat makes sense on how to trade. And it's not this like, really opaque confusing kind of excel spreadsheet looking interface like you get on some other platforms and we just really want to lower the barrier to options and make sure that like everyone's able to access them and try and use them uh, and then the last bit is I think safety is really important um, because they are like a volatile product and like options prices can change quite a lot because they're kind of non-linear in nature we want to make sure that users are protected they're kind of managing risks so we've got like a lot of kind of I think safe margin parameters at the moment so people can't get Overlevered and then start getting liquidated really easily, uh, and we also have this internal risk engine. We kind of have what's called like a mark price or like our internal uh, fare for what we think these options are worth. This updates pretty much every uh, every block, so half a second essentially. It's based on the Pith Oracle. We update it really quickly. It's kind of calibrated to trades and other things that happen on the platform, so it's meant to be really reactive. And we basically built this because we don't want prices to, to drift off what they actually should be. And then people just get randomly liquidated for no reason when they shouldn't be. So, so far it's been going pretty well. We've had like barely any liquidations. I think people have been pretty happy, but always improvements to be made.
0: Very cool. One of the things you touched on was how you're starting kind of with vanilla options and you're interested in more like perpetuals and maybe other derivatives and kind of like creating this suite of a variety of products that folks can use. And you kind of need like cross margining across all of them. How do you decide, like from a product standpoint, when to use like other open source primitives? Maybe you can use like Margin Five for for cross margining, or you know another protocol DeFi primitive for for futures contracts. Like, how do you decide, like what you guys build versus like plugging into this open source composable ecosystem that already exists on Solana?
1: Yeah, this is a really good question and something we've been grappling with for many, many months. I think it does come with, you know, a set of trade-offs and we do have to put our heads down and and think about it quite a lot. I think in the early days, we were really looking to integrate with one of these kind of linear kind of trading platforms. So anything that's like perps or spot or futures. So, you know, obviously talking to like teams like Mango and a bunch of others out there on like integrating, because we're like, Hey, we need these futures. And we didn't necessarily want to build them ourselves because it was extra time. The one thing that's like slightly tricky with early composability is so many of these platforms and protocols were changing like every week. So it was kind of like trying to hit a moving target, you know, their code base is changing how they're doing stuff. And we're like, we're also changing and trying to be agile. So in the early days, that was a little bit tricky to kind of integrate Mango margins, their stuff a little bit differently to how we do it. So it's really hard to consolidate and do like a cross margin across two things. I know Marginify is trying to tackle this now, which is why we're, I think, trying to work really hard with them um, and trying to integrate because I think it's such a cool product. But yeah, for example, with those futures, we realized there's a, there's a clever trick where essentially if you treat uh, a zero strike call, it's more or less a future. And so that was something that we could just pretty much chuck straight into our kind of framework and, and pretty much pop out futures within like a day's worth of work, um, which was pretty cool. But now in future, we're, we're really focusing on composability. That's a massive thing for us. So working with, say, some of the borrow lend platforms, I think they've got nice functionality and allows us to do, say, kind of multi collateral. Because currently we just do kind of like cash margin for stuff. Um, if we want people, you know, to kind of margin with Sol, they can kind of borrow cash on their Sol or something rather. Or and then yeah, now there's like this whole ecosystem of, I guess, derivatives apps that are the building on top of futures and options. And so we're re- really trying to service them. So you've seen. These kind of DeFi options vaults uh, really blow up in probably like the last month or two. There's this whole popping ecosystem of these now, whereas if you were to look at this maybe like three, four, five months ago, it was pretty barren. Like no one was there. Everyone was telling us that, hey, options have like no product market fit. No one cares about it. And now you've got Katana, you've got Friction, you've got like Tap, a bunch of others. We just brought over Ribbon Finance from Ethereum and we kind of helped them launch on Solana, which to my knowledge, is the, I think, biggest EVM kind of project to to move over to Solana um, properly, which is pretty exciting. So yeah, we're just trying to service this ecosystem and really compose with all the projects that are trying to build up on us. And you've got like five hackathons happening now, kind of almost concurrently. You've got like CRM Convergence, a bunch of cool stuff came out of there. You've got like, yeah, this Solana Global Hackathon, like a bunch of others, so very exciting times.
0: Yeah, and I think... A related question, and you answered some of it. But Zeta, it seems like at its core, it is a protocol, and and you want external developers, right, to be integrating with with your protocol so that they can build things like you know structured product, you know things like Ribbon or Friction or Katana. But at the same time, you 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 do have a really nice front end um, that you guys have obviously spent a, a good amount of time on. Like, how do you view that piece of it? Where You know, you are a developer platform in a sense because you're composable with all these other systems that could plug in and provide value to the underlying protocol. But at the other end, like how much work do you put into your front end to make it a trading destination for end users?
1: I think we started very much from like the singular mindset of let's build like this really amazing exchange ourselves and then have realized that, hey, we only have so many hours in a day and this is like quite a grand vision and you really, I think, get this exponential payoff or this like nonlinear scaling when you start integrating developers from the community. People start building on top of you, and you start growing a bit of an ecosystem. I think Serum's like a really great example of that. Like, obviously, they've got this great order book, but now it's used by 50 plus projects. It, it really scales pretty amazingly, and it's like this core primitive in the ecosystem. And so, we want to offer that because we've spent like six months trying to engineer this really complex and sophisticated uh, options and futures protocol. We don't want people to necessarily go through the pain of figuring out how to do like under collateralized trading and margining and settlement of options and all the pain points that we've had there. And so we want people to kind of leverage that, build cool things. But at the same time, we needed like a front end. We want people to be able to trade. I'm not expecting people to like whip up TypeScript or get a CLI going and start placing trades programmatically. Like that's not going to really appeal to the majority of users. So it was us coming up with like a really sleek web app. Uh, We also built like uh, a kind of, not a mobile app, but like you can access it through like a mobile browser. Um, And we're going to integrate that obviously with Phantom Mobile, which I think will make for a really nice experience. But yeah, other than that, we've been focusing hugely on dev tooling. That was kind of a pivot in our focus from like, we built this exchange kind of, and it works really well internally. And then I think I pushed pretty hard from our side to focus on composability and how we integrate with a lot of other projects. And so that was releasing like, a TypeScript SDK, which basically all the market makers and programmatic traders use. It just makes their life a lot easier. And a lot of people like don't necessarily want to click trade through our platform. So if you're running a market making bot doing all those kind of essential functions, then that's really convenient for you. And then something else I wrote, which is our kind of like Rust uh, cross-program invocation library. This is basically what the Vault Projects and all these other guys have been bugging us um, for months for. And I, I kept basically pushing back on guys like Katana and just being like, it's coming, we're focusing on the platform, we're trying to get that out, then I'll kind of service you guys once it's ready. And so ended up kind of doing it in parallel. I'm like, these guys are pretty important to our strategy, we really should be supporting them. So ended up just like writing out that client, I even kind of like built a bit of a sample vault implementation just to like make it as frictionless to move over as possible. And they've kind of taken that and, and run with it. And the feedback that we've gotten is like, everyone's like, the developer documentation is really good. It's easy to use. Like they don't even need to ask questions. So it scales well for us where I don't need to get on a call for like two hours and walk them through how our stuff works. They just like read the docs, kind of fork it over, um, start running it, make their own changes. And, you know, they've got a product working within like an hour, which is pretty amazing.
0: That's awesome. One thing you also mentioned was like mobile, which is interesting. I mean, yeah, for those that don't know, like Phantom, the browser extension wallet, has released an iOS app recently and getting a ton of downloads. And it's, I think, getting the ecosystem thinking, like, how do we, like, optimize for mobile? Like, obviously, part of the promise of DeFi, right, is that there's billions of people around the world. They have smartphones. They maybe don't have access to, you know, first world financial infrastructure. And so if they have a smartphone and they have a phantom wallet and they can get some funds into the wallet, like, you you get access to this next generation financial system. But on the other hand, like, and maybe that works well with, like, simple things like I want to get a loan or I want to, like, make a trade or, like, invest in a stock. But when you're talking about using pretty advanced derivatives, whether it's, like, futures or options, you know, screen space matters, I think. Like, you know, you you, you just envision, like, you know, the Wall Street trader with, like, you know, 17 screens, you know, loaded up. So, like, yep, yep. how do you think about that? Like, are are people, do you think, going to be, you know, trading... Perpetuals and stuff from their mobile phones, you know, in, in Indonesia, or how how do you see that playing out?
1: Yeah, I definitely see it happening. Like to be honest, I think I went through a period where I, I used to pretty much exclusively use like, finance and FTX from my my um kind of desktop computer, and then it got to a point where, I don't know, I just got too lazy, and it was so convenient on my phone. Like if I just want to, you know, if I just hear like oh. This this coin is is probably a good buy now. I'll just kind of check it on my app and, and go and place an order. And it's it's super frictionless. It's super easy to do and like very convenient. So I really like that. And I think what spurred us was kind of a twofold thing. One is like seeing what our audience was and what people wanted. And obviously it's a it's a global audience. If you're looking at you know the whole span of things, a lot of people like do use mobiles actually, which kind of shocked me because I came into this being like I've never used a DeFi app on mobile and I don't think I ever will. And then I looked at like what our Discord statistics were. We put out actually like a survey or two, like our kind of PM guy wanted to do a survey and figure out kind of a little bit what our user base was. Turned out like this huge proportion of people, I forget the exact percentage, um, but we're accessing and using primarily from mobile. Interesting. And I think that tends to be probably more of a like third world geography type thing. Uh, people tend to be very big on the on the mobile phone stuff. We were like, hey, we can't ignore this customer segment. There's clearly like a fair bit of demand there. And this is something that we should probably cater to and it was really good from the design side so like the second part was we obviously want to simplify but still have like functional options we don't want to simplify to a case where it's like click one button and it, it does stuff for you it's like we just want to make it intuitive and i think easy to use without making it unnecessarily complicated so we're like let's hide stuff like you know greek exposures and all this stuff in options that's like probably for the pros and it's probably overkill uh, and so we're like let's design for mobile first which is actually feedback from Josh Taylor from the Solana team, the designer there, gave us a bunch of good feedback of like, design for mobile first, it'll force you to be really efficient and think about uh, screen real estate and then go back to like the web one after that. And then you'll probably have like a much simpler or like a uh, more compact, I think information dense kind of screen there. So that worked really well for us. Um, we kind of rolled with that. We had these kind of two apps. We actually kind of split it out. We didn't want to have necessarily the same exact experience for both uh, web and mobile, which we had initially, and I think our binary options one, it was just like a clone of both. But we realized, hey, we're going to have different audiences catering to both, probably the more pro traders are going to get on the web app. So we're going to have essentially like the, the options kind of uh, like the, the layout of all the options, you've got a lot more like kind of parameters and knobs to look at, you can look at like open interest and, you know, probably like we'll add in like Delta and all these other things that I think the pro traders really appreciate. But when we're like looking at the mobile app, we gave the the kind of normal interface and we put in other stuff which is kind of useful from the price and you can kind of get these little metrics like what's the probability of the option finishing in the money and I feel like that's a lot more tangible than like I just look at an option and it's priced at like $2.70 and I'm like what the hell does that mean Mm. whereas if I'm like hey this has like a 20% chance of finishing in the money then that makes a lot more sense to I think regular users and we change the flow a little bit as well where it's like if people aren't really comfortable placing options we made a very simplified flow, which is like, I think the price is going up or the price is going down, which kind of caters to people who are only familiar with like these up down perpetual products. And that basically like auto fills out your kind of I'm buying a call or I'm buying a put with some kind of nearest expiry, some other parameters. So it kind of takes, I think, some of the decision load off people, because otherwise people come in there, they're like, I want to buy an option, I don't really know what I'm doing. But I've got to put in this like expiry. I've got to select like the strike. And then I've got to select like all these different parameters. I got to like buy or sell it. Which one do I do? I don't know. It's kind of a lot of mental load. So we're just trying to like minimize that for people.
0: Nice. That's awesome. So maybe maybe the last section here, we can go through some, some rapid fire questions. So I listened to this podcast from Tyler Cohen, who's like an economist and mm-hmm. professor in the United States. And basically how this is going to work is I'm going to say a word or a phrase, you're going to say whether it's overrated or underrated. Gotcha. Um, and then you can give a, a brief definition of why why you think it's overrated or underrated. So Makes sense. I'm going to say something first, a word, and it's just going to kind of be rapid fire. We can talk a little bit about each, but you ready?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: All right. Anonymous crypto teams. I think underrated. Why
1: is that? I think they like do pretty good work. And I think coming from a background in like traditional software engineering, where people care a lot about like, credentials and things like that, I think what you should really be measured on is kind of your like a meritocratic thing where people just do good work. And I think, you know, people go out there in the crypto ecosystem, they don't make a big fuss, but they kind of launch these protocols. And I think people do really good work and they don't need to have like a, you know, Stanford CS background or something other to contribute to the ecosystem. So it's kind of really nice and, and refreshing to see people who, you know, might be self-taught in kind of crypto. And a lot of people are, I think they kind of take it on their kind of own initiative and they go out there, build amazing products and kind of change and push the financial narrative forward or whatever they're building in the crypto ecosystem. So I'm pretty bullish on those teams for sure.
0: Out of curiosity, why didn't your team go anonymous? I think so most people
1: in the team, I think are pretty anonymous okay. and like want to stay that way. I think it's me who's sort of had to be the the doxed individual on the team. Yeah. But it's more like, you know, you want to do these speaking opportunities or kind of go and publicize or like get the name out about like your protocol. And I think it's it's very hard, or at least for me, it was, it was kind of tough to do that. People don't necessarily take you seriously, especially when you're kind of trying to raise capital or do other things like people, I think, don't really, that doesn't fly with a lot of people. When you're trying to talk people, to people from more um, traditional industries, they kind of laugh it off as a bit of a joke. So I, I don't mind too much from, from my perspective. I'm kind of pretty comfortable with it. But yeah, at least we have like a little bit of a mix.
0: Um, the metaverse.
1: I think overrated. I just hear it as this like kind of buzzword. You hear it from everyone, especially I guess like VCs and other people. You know, I, I hear it from like a lot of my I hate to say it, but like normy friends from outside of crypto. Like that's starting to become a bit more of a, a tagline, but especially like in relation with like NFTs. This is something that everyone kind of gets into in the space, and I think that's good to broaden the adoption and onboard the next like billion users. But I still don't have a really good understanding of what exactly the metaverse is. And now I'm seeing all this stuff. Yeah, what is it? I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know. (laughs) No one's got a definition. It's just like this buzzword that gets thrown around. And now I'm seeing like, you know, Facebook rebrands to meta. You've got all this like kind of corporate BS coming out and like, we're going to build the metaverse. And I'm like, I don't really want to be part of, you know, Zuck's metaverse necessarily. (laughs) Um, So I'm a little bit bearish on that.
0: Yes, I too do not want to be a part of Zuck's Wonderland. So, okay, insurance and DeFi. Uh, definitely, I think, under-hyped.
1: Under I think people, yeah, people go to the really kind of quick and easy stuff to understand. And, you know, obviously NFT is a nice, like, bridge, gaming, stuff like that, I think is really cool. And not to, to downplay that. But then I think something, the the narrative for, for DeFi is really strong. We're building, like, a new financial ecosystem. If you're looking back at, like, What's happened in traditional finance? Like, obviously, there's been like decades of innovation and stuff. I feel like that's kind of slowing down and is not really suited to this kind of web-enabled world that we live in now. So, there's kind of obviously this like Web three meme that everyone throws around, but I think it is like genuinely true and it's going to be a bit of a paradigm shift. Uh, even now, like you know, I try and open a new bank account or do like a cross-border payment or something or other. It's a huge pain in the ass. Like, like there's so many things and steps you have to go through. It takes forever you clipped on fees on like absolutely everything. Whereas I remember the first time I opened up a, a Solana wallet and I just sent like, sent someone USDC. It's like confirmed in a second, pretty much. I paid like a fraction of a cent in fees. I'm like, this is incredible. Like nothing beats this. And I think Anatoly brings that great statistic of like 20% of global GDP just Literally gets dedicated and and used up by just moving money around and having all these like middlemen like take commissions on things. So, I'm like, wouldn't it be incredible if we all got a day back in our lives that we didn't have to work if like the, the whole financial ecosystem was a little bit more efficient and like more transparent? And I don't know, personally, I really like it because having worked in like the software industry where like open source is pretty king there and the only reason anything works is because people have built all these like libraries and other things underneath that kind of all build up and you can build your application in like 10 lines of python now and this is kind of like doesn't obviously happen in traditional finance you've got like all these firms who like guard their secrets it's like world gardens and now you've got this like transparent financial ecosystem where everything's kind of majority of stuff is open source it's like composable like people don't need permission to go and place and execute orders through zeta or kind of build whatever their protocol is like there's vault product on top of us, like, just go ahead and do it. It's a piece of public infrastructure. So I think that's that's pretty awesome. And I'm, I'm super excited when we live in this world where everything can kind of like, talk to each other, you're like actually earning productive yield on your assets and not like the, the 0.2% that I probably get in my bank account these days. And then following on from that, yeah, I think derivatives are, are pretty cool. Um, I think you, when you look at any financial ecosystem, you've got like a few stages of where you're going through. So you know, we started with simple kind of token swaps, then you're going to like these borrow lend protocols, then you're kind of getting more into perps and and leverage. And then I think like the last piece of this derivatives puzzle is you're starting to get to like options. And then on the very end of the spectrum, you're starting to get to like exotic options and this crazy stuff. And you're seeing a few protocols popping up for that. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I think it's such a natural fit. And yeah, when we started this, we're like, it's such a obvious play that this will take off. And we've already seen perpetuals swell to like multiple billions, uh, if not more, of volume on centralized exchanges. Even stuff like DYDX is just like blown up massively all of last year and, and this year. So yeah, I'm like super bullish on that. And yeah, you know, I, I think it's service still. Like I, I think it's just going to grow more and more. And if you look at traditional markets, I think derivatives eclipses spot by like 20x or something or other. Like it's just huge. Singapore. I think I think underhyped right now. I think it's still like fairly under the radar. Uh, I think it's you know, a pretty cool part of the world where it's like a nice melting pot between like Western and East. So it's cool. I think being around here and seeing that like it's still an English speaking country, but you get exposure to that kind of side of the world. Yeah, it was just kind of convenient for us as well, because it's that whole kind of APAC time zone. And so far, it's it's been pretty enjoyable. I think there's like a really, really fast growing crypto ecosystem. So it's still behind, I would say, the US like, you know, is kind of the leader. I think all like the the main people are there in the Bay Area or New York, building cool stuff. You're definitely starting to see more people move here. I think it's a big crypto hub, and I think kudos to like the regulators for like not just trying to outright ban things and trying to have a little bit of a conversation, which I think is pretty rare when it comes to crypto. Um, you have you know everyone trying to shut it down and and label it as this kind of like oh this is some like black market thing and and people are using it for like. All these kind of nefarious operations when you have like actual legitimate builders trying to build like awesome financial infrastructure that will hopefully change the world. So, yeah, I'm definitely see like more people moving here. I think hopefully growing a little bit of a Solana footprint, you know, we'll, we'll have this Singapore hacker house going and hopefully like a, a more longer term installment and, you know, looking forward to having more startups around.
0: Uh, yeah, completely agree. Huge fan of Singapore. I've been there a handful of times and I've always had a really good experience there. So, Okay. Next one. Sleep. I think under, under hyped for sure. Um, I have a lot of
1: friends probably more in like the kind of banking sphere who are just like sleepers for the week type mentality. Um, they're like, I just sleep like three hours and go back to my desk job at like Goldman Sachs and then just kind of do all my stuff there. And they're like, who needs to sleep doesn't really matter. They have like fucked up sleep schedules. And I don't know, I've read a couple of books on, on sleep. I think there's that classic, like Matthew Walker one on like why we sleep and you know, a bunch of other good ones. And yeah, it does seem pretty critical. I know at least myself when I get less than six hours of sleep, I'm super grumpy and just have a lot of brain fog and like cannot think straight. And when you're trying to like code up smart contracts and rust, I think you need your mind to be performing pretty well. So we have a bit of a weird, I think, sleep schedule going in our team somewhat. We're trying to service like 24 hours of the clock. And even though some of us are in like the same time zone, say like we just have to like stagger our hours. So I'm personally like a bit of a, uh, early bird. So I, I try and get off earlier and I enjoy like the early hours because I tend to get very tired at night and can't like problem solve. Whereas I'm fresh in the morning, whereas some other guys in the team, especially on the engineering team, love to pull the late nights and be up until like three, four, five AM. So, you know, it kind of works, but we're around on the clock. So if a market maker or someone throws a fast and like the platform's breaking, like we're always there on call. But I think sleep in general is super underrated. I think it's Pretty important in like the long run. Like you want to be getting your six to eight hours.
0: Yeah, I think uh I I asked this question because I think you had a pretty infamous tweet. Uh, And I think it was yeah, (laughs) it was quote uh, peak crypto living, and it's just a picture of a rug and a and a, ma- and a mattress on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> That's right.
1: Oh, my, my sleep is terrible. That was when we moved into like a new place, and I pretty much had no furniture. Like we bought a uh, we bought a widescreen monitor before we bought like a bed. So, you know, we were working super productively, but then I would go up to my room and just more or less sleep on a yoga mat on the floor, which was uh, maybe not the most comfortable thing. But uh, I got by for like a week and then managed to buy a bit more furniture, have like at least a basic bed now. So my sleep has improved incredibly since then.
0: Nice. And this will be the last one. Uh, Solana. That was a hard one to say. I think if you would ask me
1: last year, it would definitely be underhyped. I still think it's underhyped. I think like people have been fighting it and being like, hey, this isn't a real chain. It's like overblown. It's like VC chain chain bad or something or other. You know, people are kind of always trying to put shit on it, um, which I don't think is justified. And I look at those people now and I'm like, clearly, you haven't used any of the apps that are on the platform where you have like no appreciation of what people are trying to build. Cause I think being I wouldn't say an insider, but at least like a builder in the ecosystem, you're like, hey, there are like a lot of really cool teams building cool stuff. Um, and there are so many products yet to be launched. So I still think it's in the period where it's underhyped, and we're going to have just so many more Solana apps just because it can scale and we're not going to hit these like really crappy limits like you hit on like in Ethereum L1, um, where suddenly like everything is costing an insane amount of money. So I think still think the space has like so much room to grow and like the way that Solana is built, I think like does scale pretty nicely. I think it has like definitely gotten some hype like towards the end of last year i think it did feel a little bit toppy i think in crypto in general and going to breakpoint and there was like so so much hype and so much like crazy kind of sentiment going around everyone was like i think feeling really good because their bags are getting pumped and you know people are in like solana 200 plus dollar territory and there's like this whole nft thing going on you've got all these announcements from like founder of reddit and like you know founder of brave and stuff and you're like wow, this is like mainstream adoption. What's going on? Solana's going to infinity. And then like the whole market nuked and then kind of brings you somewhat back to reality. And I think now is probably like the best time for builders when like price is a little bit suppressed. People can kind of put their head down because I got to say like end of last year was pretty hard to concentrate on just like pure engineering. There's like a million different distractions going on. So I think it's nice that things are a bit more low-key now and you know it's a bit more of like a healthy growth trajectory.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, This is definitely solana season from my perspective because this is the best time to build applications i think yeah really happy that you guys are in the ecosystem i'm really excited that zeta is now on mainnet and uh yeah thanks thanks again for coming on the show awesome not at all my pleasure